From American Public Media, this is an American Radio Works documentary. Las Vegas, an unconventional history. Produced with the public television program American Experience and director Stephen Ives. In May 2005, Las Vegas celebrated its 100th birthday. There's no place that better captures the spirit of the American culture, for better and for worse, than Las Vegas. And it epitomizes what everybody wants, a chance to strike it rich, a chance to overcome the odds. People come here and feel they're living a naughtier life. Las Vegas is a great place if you don't have any weaknesses. If you have weaknesses, this town will punch a hole in there. I'm Deborah Amos. In the coming hour, Las Vegas, an unconventional history from American Radio Works. First, this news update. From American Public Media, this is an American Radio Works documentary, Las Vegas, an unconventional history, produced with the PBS program, American Experience. I'm Deborah Amos. Las Vegas marked its centennial in May 2005. The city celebrated with the 65-ton cake delivered on seven flatbed trucks assembled in an airplane hangar and iced by a legion of volunteers. This was a fitting confection for a city that relishes spectacle and glitz. At age 100, Las Vegas had many reasons to celebrate. Once a remote desert outpost, Las Vegas is the fastest growing metropolitan area in the United States. With dozens of flourishing hotels, casinos and restaurants, tourism is at an all-time high. It's a place where tens of thousands of jobs are created each year, 60 new streets are named each month, and more than a thousand new residents move to town each week. In a city famous not only for spectacle but sin, Las Vegas has also had its share of trouble. Las Vegas ranks near the top of American cities in rates of alcoholism, drug addiction, personal bankruptcy, teen pregnancy, and suicide. Despite these problems, journalist Mark Cooper says people are beating a path to Vegas in search of a better life. I think in many ways Las Vegas is the most American of cities, and it's a real irony. Uh, people used to come to Las Vegas to get away from America, and all those jobs and all those careers that people thought were safe and secure in the heartland and the Rust Belt, etc., have disappeared. So history has had a good laugh because Las Vegas turns out to be one of the best places to come to work and to get a career and to get a union job and to get a living wage. So you actually come to Las Vegas the way you used to come to Detroit. Over the next hour, with narrator Michael Murphy, we'll visit Las Vegas as it grows from a remote railroad town to a mobster metropolis, and finally to the city today, an adult-themed resort town that nearly two million people call home. Housekeeping. There's so much more to Vegas than the Strip. And when you get here and see what else they have, you won't even come to the Strip. Hello? Hello? Open real slow, you never know. 
Yvette Dixon is a guest room attendant at Bellagio Hotel and Casino. Cleaning a dozen bathrooms and making 20 beds a day, she's found her own sort of dream here in Las Vegas. Here they got so many hotels coming up, stores opening up every day. So you can get a job real easy. It might not be the job you want, but it'll be a job until you can get the job you want. You can move into a brand new house. They build it the way you want, you, you know, the way you want them to. No money down. Not a penny. Now that was for me. <laughs> Yvette moved here from Los Angeles. This is indeed the best move I ever made. I wasn't established in California. I went there in 1970. I never bought a house and I never owned anything. So as soon as I moved here, I got my jobs, got a new car, got a new truck, got a new house, and only been here six years. I cleaned up. <laughs> Mommy, want some gumbo? A little bit. Across town, another Las Vegas transplant family is also finding success. We would meet at home and say, okay, we got $150. And we had a little bucket, I swear to you, a little bucket. And we saved up $15,000, just like that. Colette Diamond and her husband Kenny settled in Las Vegas after a life on the road as musicians. He took a job as a valet. She became a cocktail waitress. With each car parked and each drink served, the couple saved enough tips for a down payment on a small house. So we did that till I came home one day and my daughter had on my cocktail outfit. She says, Mommy, I want to be just like you. So I started real estate school the next day. When was this built, Colette? This is built in 2003, so it fits what you guys try to do. Colette and Kenny rank among the top-selling realtors in Las Vegas. Right now, I sell million-dollar houses to people who 10 years ago were just like me. And in this community and in this kind of an environment, it's given us that dream. I never could have done this for us anyplace else. The Diamonds now live in a roomy 6,000-square-foot home. The exploding property market in Las Vegas transformed the Diamonds' life and the city's landscape. The Chamber of Commerce estimates that a new home is finished every nine hours. At 100 years old, Las Vegas has come a long way. Las Vegas was founded in 1905 as a railroad town. It enjoyed about a dozen years of prosperity, catering to passengers on layover and supplying mining camps to the north and south. But after a devastating national railroad strike in 1922, some thought Las Vegas would end up a ghost town. Art critic Dave Hickey says what saved Las Vegas was Nevada's tolerance for sin. The history of Nevada, I mean, it's just a big desert. I mean, it's really nowhere. And it's, its whole tradition is doing illegal stuff. Divorces, you know, they do prize fights. They do all this stuff that was banned from Prohibition America. And so this became the way you make money in the desert. In the midst of the Great Depression, thousands of men traveled west to southern Nevada's Black Canyon desperate to land one of the 5,000 construction jobs on Boulder Dam, later known as Hoover Dam. For four and a half years, the dam workers spent their days toiling between walls of scorching hard rock and their nights penned inside Boulder City. In what had once been an uninhabited waterless desert, supporting only a sparse, inhospitable growth of chaparral and cactus, the beautiful little town of Boulder City was built within the short space of 15 months to house the army of 5,000 men to be employed. The workers lived for payday, 
With money in their pockets, they headed for nearby Las Vegas. There on a two block stretch of Fremont Street, they found a body, brightly lit cluster of gambling dens and brothels and saloon after saloon after saloon. Mark Cooper is a journalist who's written extensively about Las Vegas. They were living in these camps in this unforgiving desert in a state of real lockdown. And let's face it, there's absolutely nothing to do. So that you had two choices on payday in Boulder City. You could stay back in the camp and not drink and maybe play some cards. Or you could hit Fremont Street and gamble and drink and party until your check ran out. Now, which one would you have chosen? In 1931, Nevada solidified its reputation as the nation's rogue state. It legalized wide-open casino-style gambling. Within months, new gambling houses and slot machines could be found all over town. But legal gambling alone would likely never have brought people to a place as remote as Las Vegas. Curiosity about the dam also boosted business. In 1932, some 100,000 people went to gawk at what was fast becoming known as the eighth wonder of the world. An event of political importance at this mighty work of hydroelectric engineering completed two years ahead of time. Inspection of Boulder Dam by President Roosevelt and the First Lady. We are here to celebrate the completion of the greatest dam in the world. Ever opportunistic, Las Vegas took to billing itself as the gateway to the Boulder Dam. And thanks mainly to dam tourism, Las Vegas discovered the immense potential for profit in America's forbidden desires. The town quickly became a destination for scores of gambling operators, card sharps, and crooked cops on the lam. Mark Cooper says a good number of them came from Los Angeles, where reform-minded politicians were cleaning up the town, and which by 1938 was just a day's drive from Las Vegas. Now, Los Angeles was a very, very corrupt place with lots of illegal gambling. And these kind of do-gooders came into power around the time of the Depression, and they drove the gamblers out. And it was really Los Angeles gamblers who came to Las Vegas. The notion that Las Vegas was some kind of Heldorado cow town, it was a chamber of commerce ruse. Las Vegas was always a satellite of Los Angeles. They gravitated to the city because they had the expertise. Eugene Mooring is a historian at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. They knew more than many of the local yokels who were running the small casinos of how to make customers happy, how to give comps, when to do it, and they brought a real expertise in casino management to Las Vegas. One of the more infamous underworld figures to come to Las Vegas was a dapper and often volatile mobster named Benjamin Bugsy Siegel. I have found the answer to the dreams of America. Actor Warren Beatty played Siegel in the 1991 film Bugsy. What do people always fantasize about? Sex, romance, money, adventure. I'm building a monument to all of them. What are you talking about here? A whorehouse? No, I'm talking about a hotel. I'm talking about Las Vegas, Nevada. I'm talking about a place where gambling is allowed, where everything is allowed. The whole territory is wide open. I'm talking about a palace, an oasis, a city. I think what Ben is saying is it's a good place to trap people in to take their money. Is that what you're getting at here, Benny? Bugsy Siegel knew that after World War II, Americans were looking for a good time. He began to sink mob money into a handful of gambling halls before finally buying the El Cortez Hotel. The official owner of the hotel was a front man. Behind him, a roster of investors that read like a who's who of organized crime. These men got their share of profits from cash, secretly taken out of the casinos, earnings known as the skim. 
journalist Mark Cooper. There's no taxes on a skim and there's no bookkeeping on the skim. It is your upfront money. When the mob controlled one of these casinos, they had their operatives who would effectively supervise what's called the hard count room, which is where you count up the money. And you knew that if Bob or Joe was the guy who would come in literally with a sack, with a box, and pick up some money and walk out the door, well, nobody saw anything. Benny Siegel would soon invest in a new Las Vegas development, one he promised would be, as he said, the goddamn biggest, fanciest gaming casino and hotel you bastards ever seen in your whole lives. He would call it the Flamingo. Before Benny Siegel opened the Flamingo, the look of the casinos in Las Vegas were all cowboy casinos. Nick Pileggi has written a book and screenplay about the mobsters in Las Vegas. They were Western. There was sawdust on the floor. Benny Siegel comes in. He creates an urban Miami Beach hotel in the middle of the desert. Suddenly, when you walk into a casino, you're not met by a guy with a cowboy hat and a six-shooter and cowboy chaps. No, you're met by a guy in a tuxedo. You're met by a guy like looks like Dean Martin. With its swank atmosphere, wall-to-wall carpeting, and newfangled air conditioning system, the Flamingo became a hot new cool spot for the Hollywood crowd. But by the time construction was completed in 1947, Siegel had overspent his budget by $4.5 million. The syndicate's mood soured. A few months later, Siegel was shot dead. By then, the word on Las Vegas was out. Crooks and con men from all over the country decamped to the desert. Nick Pileggi. When these guys came here, It was like a morality or ethical car wash. You came here, you were cleansed of your sins, you were now legitimate and legal. I didn't care what you did, you got a wash. They came out here and the shackles came off. Brian Greenspun is editor of the Las Vegas Sun. They could do in the sunshine what they could only do in the shade where they came from. It was legal. And they said to themselves, I know they said it, this is a place to make our home. This is a place to raise our families. As one resident put it, Las Vegas was now home to more socially prominent hoodlums per square foot than any other community in the world. I'm Deborah Amos. Coming up after a short break, atomic bomb testing becomes a tourist attraction in Las Vegas. It was part of the entertainment. It was definitely part of the show. And people who came to Vegas, I think, wanted there to be a test while they were there, something else they could see. Up until that point, we were just a spot in the desert. We were prostitution, we were gambling. Suddenly, we were helping to win the Cold War, and I think people could uh, grab a hold of that because it was a good thing to do for democracy. You're listening to an American Radio Works documentary, Las Vegas, an unconventional history, produced with the PBS program American Experience. Our program continues in just a moment from American Public Media. From American Public Media, this is Las Vegas, an unconventional history, an American Radio Works documentary produced with the PBS program American Experience. I'm Deborah Amos. Fall 1950. A fierce international war rips through a small country on the North Yellow Sea called Korea. 
Russia has successfully detonated an atomic bomb. Now, more than ever before, we need to develop and produce a greater number and variety, and possibly even more powerful atomic weapons. New atomic bombs must first be tested. But where? At mid-century, Las Vegas seemed far removed from the Cold War gripping the rest of America. With the mob in full control, the city was raking in enormous profits from gambling, an activity outlawed everywhere else in the nation. But Las Vegas was also searching for new paths to respectability. Oddly, it was the Cold War that gave Vegas a lift. Our narrator is Michael Murphy. Five, four, three, two, one, T-Zero. Just before dawn on January 27, 1951, a white flash lit up the Las Vegas sky. Minutes later, a thundering blast left a trail of broken glass more than a dozen blocks long. This is Walter Cronkite, and this is Newsman's Knob, some 75 miles north of Las Vegas, Nevada. The bomb will be exploded from a tower 300 feet high. This will be the first time that uh, newsmen have been permitted to watch such an explosion from a tower. Over the next 12 years, 120 nuclear devices, an average of one every five weeks, were detonated above ground at the federal government's Nevada Proving Facility. It was just an hour's drive from downtown Las Vegas. Nevada State Senator Dina Titus says the atomic testing program made Las Vegas seem more legitimate. Up until that point, we were just a spot in the desert. We were prostitution, we were gambling. Suddenly, we were helping to win the Cold War, and I think people could uh, grab a hold of that because it was a good thing to do for democracy. As the atomic arms race gathered speed, Las Vegas was the only city in the country with a front row seat to ground zero. Casinos hosted bomb parties that peaked with an early morning blast. The bombs went off at dawn. People would go up to the roofs and they'd watch with glee. Film critic David Thompson has written about Las Vegas. It was part of the entertainment. It was, it was definitely part of the show. And people who came to Vegas, I think, wanted there to be a test while they were there. It was something else they could see. My father was the first newsman accredited to the testing site. Newspaper editor Brian Greenspun grew up in Las Vegas. He used to take us as kids. We used to go up to Mount Charleston. And I remember watching these mushroom clouds. And minutes later, these particles, these pink particles, would just settle over us, this dust. And it was all radioactive fallout. We all took the government's word that it was safe. And it lied to us. It knew better. The government lied to us. Studies show that some people who were near the Nevada test site when the bombs blew up may well have developed cancer from the radioactive fallout. In the mid-1950s, though, any misgivings Las Vegas residents may have harbored about the bombs were easily brushed aside. Every time a radioactive cloud bloomed over the desert, Las Vegas again made the news. And like the rest of America back then, the town was growing. Tourism was surging. Las Vegas was perfectly positioned to cash in on the post-war consumerist prosperity boom. Journalist Mark Cooper. 
I mean, think about it. 1950s, the rise of the national highway system, the emergence of motoring as a leisure activity, and money. And it's okay to have fun. It's okay to seek leisure. It's okay to go on frivolous vacations, and it's okay to push the edge. Las Vegas, Nevada, the entertainment and fun capital of the world, where the clock never stops and the doors never close. This By the mid-1950s, it seems Las Vegas was everywhere Americans looked. Magazines and movies beckoned tourists to the licentious desert getaway. From sunset to sunrise, there is continuous entertainment in the lounge of every major hotel. When Americans thought of Las Vegas, what leapt to mind was the neon-lit stretch of Highway 91 at the southern fringe of town. That was the Las Vegas Strip. Bankrolled almost entirely by organized crime figures, the new strip resorts rose up out of the scrub with stunning speed. First the Sahara and the Sands, then the new frontier in the Riviera and the Dunes. David Thompson. What happens is the mob quickly realize that it's an enormously lucrative thing, that there could be many casinos. And they also realize that in the prosperity of the post-war period, you can bring tourists. They're gonna hear about Las Vegas and it's gonna be exotic and romantic and glamorous. Meet me in Las Vegas. You came here, and just by coming here, you were making a statement. You were a little bit gamey. You were a little bit on the edge. And that was a real novel concept in American popular culture. It was the first national permission granted to you to be an adult and to do things that you might not ordinarily do, but you wanted to do. And I think that was really kind of the intoxicant that uh, drove Las Vegas. Beyond the Strip, residential Las Vegas was also exploding. By 1960, the Las Vegas population had soared 400% to more than 125,000. Most tourists never glimpsed the neighborhoods where all these new residents lived. And certainly almost no tourists had ever been to the West Side, a sprawling, squalid neighborhood across the railroad tracks from Fremont Street, home to some 15,000 African Americans. Las Vegas radio host, Patricia Cunningham. West Las Vegas, the west side, was like nothing I had ever seen before. It was the most segregated neighborhood that I had ever witnessed in my life. It was a given if you were African American, you had to live west of the railroad tracks. The first significant numbers of African Americans came to Las Vegas during World War II to help build and work in the basic magnesium factory, a defense plant. Historian Eugene Mooring there were many white people who hoped that once World War II ended, they would leave and go someplace else. But the hotel industry, the growing strip and downtown, created lots of low-paying jobs for custodial labor, roommates, waiters, and whatever. And so ironically, it was the Las Vegas hotel industry that kept African Americans here and continued to provide jobs for them right into the 21st century. Segregation was commonplace in mid-century America, and Las Vegas was no different. African Americans were not only relegated to the lowliest jobs, they were barred from patronizing almost every restaurant, casino, and club in town. As you can see from our grillering background, the theme of our show tonight is the fabulous city of Las Vegas. I'm currently appearing in this exciting... Even headlining black performers like Nat King Cole were shunted out of the Las Vegas showrooms when the curtain came down. But by the spring of 1955, a quiet revolt had begun. 
As the civil rights struggle gained momentum in the South, African-American celebrities began to challenge segregation on the Las Vegas Strip, demanding rooms in the hotels where they played and refusing to perform unless black people were allowed into the audience. Las Vegas casinos were over a barrel. They could either concede and possibly offend some white patrons or risk losing some of their most popular black entertainers. In early 1960, the local NAACP ratcheted up the pressure. Alice Key was one of the activists. NAACP called a march on the strip and they notified the Resort Hotel Association and if they didn't want to see it on national television, they would open the doors. The hotels don't want this fight. They don't want these headlines all over the country. Brian Greenspan. And this town was run by the hotels. When they said do, it got done. The day before the planned protest, members of the NAACP met with the mayor, the governor, and a group of local businessmen. Within hours, they had agreed to lift the Jim Crow restrictions at every hotel, restaurant, bar, casino, and showroom in Las Vegas. Though it would be more than a decade before the city fully desegregated, the color line was fading. Mark Cooper. This is a city where the only currency is currency. It's a place where as long as you have the chips, you are equal to everybody. Nobody cares what your race is, your color, your gender. Everybody's the same until you're out of money. Then when you're out of money, you're just out. By 1960, Las Vegas was very in. The city was an icon of cool in American culture. Warner Brothers set a major motion picture in town, Ocean's Eleven. It starred three legends of the Vegas stage, Sammy Davis Jr., Dean Martin, and Frank Sinatra. When shooting for the film wrapped for the day, they performed nightly at the luxurious Copa Room at the Sands. Uh, tell me something, do you fall in the street a lot? It's the only time I get any rest, Frank. <laughs> Sinatra and company called their act The Summit. Fans called them the Rat Pack. The show was such a hit that it would play on and off for years. We went to the Sands Hotel where every business guy with money on the planet was trying to get through the door. Casino developer Steve Wynn. Every swinger and doodah ditty guy, every sporting life character on the face of the earth was in Las Vegas taking every room in the small town so they could get a seat at the Rat Pack. Come fly with me, we'll fly, we'll fly away. And the air in the sands crackled. Something was happening. The music was playing on the PA system of Sinatra and Dean Martin. The charisma, the excitement, the electricity was beyond belief. You, there is no parallel to it today. Have you heard, are you cognizant of the fact that they are saying things? Am I what, isn't? <laughs> cognizant, I didn't say anything dirty. Started out dirty, Frank. That's all I got. Everything that Vegas promised it would be and said it would be really was embodied in those handful of weeks when the Rat Pack was here performing every night. So what it really was was the pinnacle of Vegas cool. We flippantly refer to Las Vegas now and then as Sin City, but that's when Las Vegas was really Sin City. In the fall of 1960, the rise of passenger jet service brought millions of new visitors to Sin City. Suddenly, the Las Vegas mob bosses needed more hotel rooms. And for that, 
they needed a lot of cash. Mobsters built hotels with what I call shoebox money. Hal Rothman teaches history at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. They went to each other and they said, I'm building a hotel in Las Vegas. Do you want to buy a share? It's 50,000 bucks. And the other guy pulls the shoebox out from under the bed, opens it up, and counts him out $50,000 in cash. Got to the point that hotels were too expensive to do that. You simply couldn't get enough guys with $50,000 to build a $12 million hotel. So they needed another source of capital. One of the city's top mobsters, Mo Dalitz, do just the guy to tap. His longtime associate, Jimmy Hoffa. As president of the Teamsters Union, Hoffa drew on the retirement savings of nearly 200,000 truckers and longshoremen to finance a spate of hotel expansions in Las Vegas. More hotel rooms, more guests, more money dropped at the tables and slots. All of it would eventually add up to a dramatic spike in the skim. That was the secret pile of cash the mob collected in casino counting rooms and then distributed to the network of owners with hidden interests in Las Vegas. John L. Smith is a columnist for the Las Vegas Review-Journal. It was a, a, a town that had uh, the, the, the front-end guys, the smiling guys with the, with the wild sport coats, and then it had the other folks. And of course, anyone in the lobby on a Friday night might notice that a crew of New York mob guys came in and got all the penthouse suites, and that were tr they were treated very, very well. Now, were they just gambling? Of course not. They were, they were watching their store. With Teamsters' money at their disposal, it looked as though Mo Dalitz and his cronies had found a way to stay on top. And with hundreds of millions of dollars in gambling revenues at stake, Nevada authorities left them there. Then in 1961, President John F. Kennedy appointed his brother Robert to the post of U.S. Attorney General. The mob had good reason to fear him. Just a few years earlier, Bobby Kennedy served as chief counsel to a highly publicized Senate investigation into organized crime, where he took on figures like Jimmy Hoffa. Every place you go, we've checked your telephone numbers, you're calling every gangster in the United States. Mr. Kennedy, they may be nice people today, you don't give them a chance to prove they're nice. Kennedy watched in disgust as all but a handful of the nation's leading racketeers got away. The attorney general vowed to nab those who had eluded the government's grasp. Writer Nick Pileggi says the feds set their sights on Las Vegas. The FBI and the IRS could never accept the fact that a man like Modelitz, a man who was illegal in Cleveland, could get on a plane in Cleveland, come to Las Vegas and be legal. You can't have one state where being illegal is legal. It just drove them nuts. In 1962 and 63, Kennedy's Justice Department, along with the FBI and the IRS, waged an all-out war on Las Vegas, plotting raids, planting illegal wiretaps, and searching out mob connections to every casino in town. The feds uncovered the skim, publicizing what one observer called the mob's Federal Reserve. In the face of relentless scrutiny, Las Vegas's alliance with mobsters had become a liability. Soon, an unlikely character would help dissolve that alliance. Howard Hughes, noted aircraft producer, unveils his monster helicopter to the public and Air Force officers. Billionaire Howard Hughes checked into the Desert Inn in 1966, seeking tax shelter for his riches and refuge from the press. Cloistered round the clock, Hughes began collecting strip hotels and casinos like postage stamps. Nick Pileggi says that for Las Vegas mobsters, Hughes's buying spree couldn't have come at a better time. The guys who created Las Vegas, the originals, they were powerful and rich, but they could never cash out. They could not walk away from that profit. They were now in their 60s and 70s. They wanted to leave some money to their grandkids and their families. Howard Hughes comes in with his accountants, and they could finally get rid of it. They could cash out. 
Hughes was precisely what Las Vegas needed, a national hero with a clean-cut image that could redeem the city from the stigma of organized crime. John L. Smith. I think Howard Hughes played an enormous role in the evolution of Las Vegas. Uh, his man, Bob Mayhew, says that Howard Hughes didn't make the new Las Vegas, but he got it ready. By bringing a brand name that was not Murder, Inc. into Las Vegas, Howard Hughes helped separate the community from its past. Howard Hughes moved on from Las Vegas in 1970, and corporate America moved in. Hotel chains like Ramada and Hilton took Hughes' lead and started buying up casinos. Once Wall Street came to Sodom and Gomorrah, there was little reason for Las Vegas to put up with the mob. The Justice Department today announced the indictment of 15 men, some said to be members of organized crime, for skimming more than $2 million from casinos in Las Vegas over nine years. Five of over the next several years, Nevada authorities forced a half dozen Las Vegas casinos to cut their ties to organized crime. By the mid-1980s, the last of the mobsters were gone from Las Vegas. But as corporate casinos took root, the buzzing energy of the old Sin City waned, and its nightclub cool grew tepid. We're talking about a community that had become out of step with what people thought was hip. Strangers in the night, exchanging glances, wondering in When things got punk, Las Vegas pulled up its polyester leisure suit and went, gee whiz, fellas, you want to hit the blackjack table? I mean, it wasn't with it anymore. However dowdy or corny or tame Las Vegas seemed, it was still the only big city in America where a person could legally sit down at a blackjack table and throw his life savings away. But in May 1978, even that distinction disappeared. The monopoly Nevada has enjoyed since 1931 as the only state to have legalized casino gambling ended at 10 a.m. today when the wheels spun, the cards dropped, and the dice rolled in Atlantic City, New Jersey. With millions of people living less than a gas tank away, Atlantic City easily won out against the cross-country airplane ride to Vegas. That competition, along with a national recession, sapped Las Vegas's drawing power. By 1980, Las Vegas was in the throes of a full-fledged identity crisis. You're listening to Las Vegas, an unconventional history from American Radio Works. Coming up, Sin City reinvents itself once again as tourist town and hometown. When I was a young man growing up here, the, the cultural mindset was basically, what kind of a moron would want to go to a casino and cash their paycheck? Well, now, in, in modern Las Vegas culture, that's all seen as very, very appropriate. I'm Deborah Amos. Las Vegas, An Unconventional History, is a production of American Radio Works and the PBS program American Experience. To find out more about this and other documentaries, go to our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. There you can download the program, sign up for our email newsletter, and find out how to order a CD of this program. Major funding for American Radio Works comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Our program continues in just a moment from American Public Media. Hey, place your bet. From American Public Media, this is an American Radio Works documentary, Las Vegas, an unconventional history, produced with the PBS program American Experience. I'm Deborah Amos. 35 black odd. In the early 1980s, 
Las Vegas was on a losing streak. Following two tragic hotel fires and a prolonged construction slump, it looked like the city's spectacular rise had hit the limit. But by the end of the decade, Vegas was back on its game. Las Vegas is probably the greatest example on the planet, including New York City, of 24-hour, seven-day-a-week, violent, hand-to-hand -hand commercial combat. There may be no person more responsible for the current chapter in Las Vegas history than casino resort developer Steve Wynn. Here in this city, the players are lined up along the Rialto out there. Teeth bared, lips curled back, fists clenched, saying, stay in my place, don't go in that one. In the final segment of our program, we look at the winners and losers in the new Las Vegas. Our narrator is Michael Murphy. Two, one, fire. On November 26, 1996, the 700-room Sands Hotel, once the heart of Vegas cool, was laced with dynamite and blown up. After 44 years, the Sands has succumbed. Out of the rubble rose a 6,000-room Venetian-themed resort. Between 1989 and 2005, many of Las Vegas' other landmark hotels, the Dunes, the Desert Inn, the Hacienda, were leveled, making way for what would come to be known as the new Las Vegas. The transformation of the Las Vegas skyline began in 1989 with Steve Wynn's Mirage. People once mocked Wynn's ambition to open a world-class resort, but Wynn promised the Mirage would become the Sin City equivalent of Disneyland. Pounding the pavement took on a new meaning today, especially at the Mirage Hotel, where thousands of feet jockeyed for space to see the new playland. Steve Wynn was right. Within weeks of its opening, the Mirage surpassed Hoover Dam as Nevada's leading tourist attraction. The Mirage was the largest resort casino in the world, but it wasn't just the size of Wynn's Mirage that captured attention. It was the resort's exuberant celebration of spectacle. A 20,000-gallon marine tank, a tropical rainforest, and a volcano five stories high that spews steam and flames. Las Vegas newspaper editor Brian Greenspun. Steve came and he realized that if you build it, and you build it better, and you create a little demand where maybe there wasn't demand, make it a little harder to get into, Everyone will want to get into it, and everyone want, will pay more to enjoy it. And he built these fantasy lands for adults. Give them something they can't get anywhere else. So his vision made it safe for the others who came along and built, to either alongside or right under his vision, and know that they had something that was going to work. The Mirage made Las Vegas new again, and it did so just in time. Fierce competition for gambling dollars erupted across America. By 1994, there were lotteries in 37 states and legal casinos in 23. At decade's end, the most profitable casinos were no longer found on the Las Vegas Strip, but on Indian reservations all around the country. To survive as a tourist destination, Las Vegas had to up the ante. 
We are very good at adapting. State Senator Dina Titus. I mean, how else could we have survived out here in the middle of this desert with nothing else around? Who would ever imagine it would become what it is today? Look, um, your decision to, to blow up the, the dunes, is, is it part of a larger effort to do away with the old Las Vegas and, and reshape Vegas as something else? The Today Show's Bryant Gumbel spoke with Steve Wynn. It's part of Las Vegas doing what everybody else in the entertainment business is doing in the world today, and that is keeping up with the changing tastes of the public. Everybody has become more and more highly expectant. And things that would have gotten a wow or a jazz 10 years ago draw a yawn today. Las Vegas is a place built on the idea of escape. Architecture critic Paul Goldberger. And if you believe you're about escape, then you can't be hemmed in by anything, including your own past. So. I think Las Vegas treats its past the way it wants its visitors to treat their pasts, in effect, to forget them and to just have a good time. In the 1990s, new casino hotel attractions seemed to materialize overnight. The pyramid-shaped Luxor, the pirate-themed Treasure Island, and the Venetian hotel with its canals and singing gondoliers. By 2001, Las Vegas had eclipsed the holy city of Mecca as the most visited place on Earth. All those tourist dollars helped set off a wave of housing construction as people moved to the city to find work. State Senator Dina Titus says Las Vegas must now learn how to feed the booming tourist industry while reigning in suburban sprawl. Growth is good for many reasons. It brings lots of jobs, it brings diversity, it brings excitement, it brings money. But there are also downsides to that, of course. You know, the, the tail begins to wag the dog and the number of people outweigh the infrastructure that serves them. And so you get more traffic, you get more crime, you get bad air. Well, when we first moved here, uh, you could ride out my back door and ride 500 miles north and only cross two paved roads. Steve Work has lived in Las Vegas since 1977. He moved here to produce a rodeo show for television. Well, it used to feel like it was pretty wide open. You knew your neighbors. Everybody talked to each other. The problem is, Work says, those in charge of city planning have hardly done any. When you run out of water, and you run out of usable land, and you start crowding people together uh, just for the sole purpose of making an extra buck instead of trying to develop a, a quality of life, then it becomes something entirely different. And that's what they have done. They've ignored the people and they're catering to the developers. Growth means more water consumption, more pollution, more concrete and asphalt. But growth also means more things not automatically associated with Las Vegas, like more schools. Well, usually if I'm on an airplane and they ask me what I do in Las Vegas and I tell them a principal, they say, oh, there's not schools in Las Vegas. And I have to say, well, we are the fifth largest school district in the United States. Marianne Ward is principal of the Dean Peterson Elementary School. We are not able to open schools fast enough to handle the amount of children that are coming into our city. Last year they opened, I believe, 12. I think this year it's anywhere between 10 and 11, and I know that they've said uh, that possibly next year there might have to be up to 18 new schools open. There's a lot of student turnover at Peterson Elementary. Some children have attended four different schools in the same year, making it hard to offer them consistent instruction. What a big girl! Oh my gosh! Still, 
Parents like Colette and Kenny Diamond raise children who thrive, just like any other place in America. Today, their daughter, Chanel, is trying out the training wheels on her bike. If somebody would have ever said my daughter would go to Our Lady of Las Vegas or that on their birth certificate it would say Las Vegas, I never in my wildest dreams would have thought that because you think it's in city. Colette Diamond got her start in Las Vegas as a cocktail waitress. When we first decided to get off the road and raise our baby here, I said, how can we live in Las Vegas? We're raising a, a little girl. He says, you know what, I have a vision that we can have our life here and we can be in it but not of it. Some people struggle to capture that vision. Many Las Vegas residents seldom go to the Strip, but increasingly the Strip is coming to them as casinos rise up in local neighborhoods and video gambling machines multiply in gas stations, convenience stores, even laundromats. For some people, this is a big problem. I gamble on the way to work. I gamble after work. On my way to work, if I, if I want some money, I, I wouldn't go to work. Randy has spent about 20 years working construction in Las Vegas. As he threads through city traffic, he describes a downward spiral. Then I'd go home and I'd lie to my girlfriend that, that I'd worked overtime or my car broke down or something. I, I was living quite a lie, you know. Randy sought help from psychologist Ron Hunter of the Problem Gambling Center in Las Vegas. Hunter leads support groups for people addicted to gambling. When I was a young man growing up here, the, the cultural mindset was basically if you live in Las Vegas, why would you gamble? I mean, how silly is that? That's for tourists, and, and the house has the edge, and what kind of a moron would want to go to a casino and cash their paycheck? Well, now, in, in modern Las Vegas culture, that's all seen as very, very appropriate. Hi, I'm Kim, and I'm a compulsive gambler. I'm feeling tired. I'm sick today. There's been a tremendous increase in the number of women that are soliciting treatment, and, and the overwhelming game of choice for problem gamblers is video-based. And uh, when I was out there gambling, I was just crazy. I mean, I would leave my newborn son at home with my 12-year-old at the time and not caring about going home, not caring about anything. When I opened this program in 86, I had a bunch of cigar-smoking, diamond-ring-wearing, $100-bill-throwing characters from a play. I don't see those guys much anymore. According to Hunter, the women and men addicted to video gambling machines aren't exactly having fun. They don't go to Disneyland, they go to Anesthesia Land. Because some folks are able to dissociate at such a level when they're playing that the world goes away. And, and you know, they'll gamble through a fire, not because they, they have a death wish. I think it's because they don't know they're in a room full of smoke. Experts say gambling is like alcohol. Most people can enjoy it in moderation. But for a small percentage of people, it takes over their lives. Yeah, I, I got to the point where I, I was gambling my whole check, and, and I finally ran out of people to borrow from. And uh, I didn't want my fiance to leave me. Figured I had no other alternative other than to rob a bank. Ran in there and gave the lady a note, and she started handing me money, and I went running out of there. I can remember saying, excuse me, to somebody walking out the door. Doesn't hurt to be a nice bank robber. After the robbery, Randy was arrested. He pleaded guilty and was sentenced to two years in prison. Randy says the sentence he serves in jail will be better than the one he served as a compulsive gambler.
Critics say the state of Nevada and the Las Vegas gambling industry have spent far too little to help problem gamblers like Randy. This underscores the challenge for the new Las Vegas. How much will the city cater to the millions of tourists who come here every year? And how much will it try to improve life for all the people who now call Las Vegas home? What Las Vegas needs or doesn't need as a city depends on whether you live here or not. Journalist Mark Cooper. If you don't live here, then you don't need much more than the Las Vegas Strip, do you? You could literally pare away the rest of Las Vegas, and 95% of the tourists wouldn't care and wouldn't notice. Now, the other million and a half people who live here, that's a different story. Some people call Las Vegas the ultimate American city, a place that invented itself out of nowhere and constantly remakes itself in a frank and relentless quest for money. The city has obliterated social taboos and blown up architectural landmarks, all to stay competitive. In this way, some say Las Vegas best captures the American dream. But to others, the city represents the worst of American values. It could be both. Architecture critic Paul Goldberger. You know, for me, the insane, brazen wildness of the whole thing is always very exhilarating when I first get there. And then, because it is sort of superficial, and it is without real substance behind it, it wears thin very quickly. It's kind of as if you were force-fed chocolate mousse or something like that. You know, first taste is really good. But then there comes a time when you actually want some nutrition. I think there will always be a part of the American psyche and soul that is very much Las Vegas. Journalist John L. Smith. Our country is headed more toward Las Vegas than away from it. But I think the people who uh, run the town We'll always make sure that we're out ahead, banging the right drums and, and shaking the right tambourines to make this a wilder place than the nation as a whole. Las Vegas, An Unconventional History, was originally produced by Insignia Films for American Experience, which airs Monday nights on PBS. The film was directed by Stephen Ives and produced with Amanda Pollock, written by Michelle Ferrari, series producer Sharon Grimberg, and executive producer Mark Samuels. The music was composed by Joel Goodman, the narrator Michael Murphy. This program was adapted for radio by Mary Beth Kirshner, Kate Ellis, Michael Montgomery, and Stephen Smith, with help from Bryant Switzky and Elizabeth Tannen. Thanks to radio station KNPR in Las Vegas. I'm Deborah Amos. Funding for the American Experience program Las Vegas and Unconventional History was provided by the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, the Las Vegas Convention and Visitors Authority, the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, Liberty Mutual, the Scotts Company, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Major funding for American Radio Works comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. To find out more about Las Vegas and unconventional history, and to hear this program again, visit our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. That's where you can find all of our documentary projects, including photo essays, background articles, and where you can listen to all of our radio programs. This is an American Radio Works documentary. Even though guards read inmates' mail and monitor their phone calls, gang leaders still get their orders out onto the street. They had not been adopted. 
and they were still at the orphanage. President Kennedy is dead. The President of the United States was shot down. I'm always telling the kids that their daddy loves them and their daddy misses them and he's thinking about them and he's praying for them. They threatened us. You know, next time your white man comes out, we're going to kill him. We know he's keeping people there. At AmericanRadioWorks.org, you can also sign up for our newsletter and download our podcast. That's all at AmericanRadioWorks.org. American Public Media 